baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The Chris and Amy Show, sponsored by Summer at SLU. Find your kids' best summer yet at St. Louis University. It's the Chris and Amy Show. Check it out. St. Louis, Mount City, we are going to have a great day today. Now, Amy Marks pours Chris Ranji on KMOX. Let's take it from the top. Good morning. It is a Monday morning, the Monday morning of Super Bowl week. Now it's just the countdown to the Chiefs and the 49ers. We'll help you kill the time in between. Amy Mark scores alongside Chris Ranji. Good morning, Ranj. What do you know, Amy? You Tell f- me something good today. Um, it, well, it's Super Bowl week. That's good. It is? It's sunny. That's good. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. no. Everything sounds great today. Glad you're doing well. <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, Pretty well. you know, got COVID. Oh, it's fine. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah well, that's why I'm not in the office. I was wondering. Today. Well, I didn't because I, of this is. Yeah. I think, Amy. Yeah. That it is important for people who are sick to stay the hell home. Yeah. And so, because I I am courteous and I care about you. Yeah. I stayed home. Like if Dave got it, I don't care. But if you, yeah, if you get COVID, I would feel really, really bad. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I stayed home. Well, I appreciate anyway because I got in this morning. I thought maybe you'd been canned. You know. Oh well, but, well because I was leaving a mess. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That you got to you pick up after okay. yourself, Ranj. Hey, we care about you. That's why we have yeah. so many opportunities for you to listen to the Chris and Amy show. If you're listening on 11:20 a.m., the classic. You can also check out 98.7 FM, Crystal Clear FM station, especially along the Cordy. 40 corridor also the odyssey app it's free to download listen anytime you can rewind live radio and of course the chris and amy show podcast anywhere you get your podcasts time now for the top of the order the top three stories everybody will be talking about well i heard this story earlier today on total information am with sean malone is sms novel films owner jomo johnson the leader of a cult is this a cult? This is the drone surveillance, Ranj. It's the weirdest thing. We will talk to Sean Malone to find out what in the world is going on. I see one of those drones outside my window <laughs> right hovering. now. Hey, the Senate's a bipartisan border bill has been agreed upon, but the House, Mike Johnson, the speaker, says, nope, it's dead on arrival. He's not going to go with it. So it might be... Uh, no more agreement. Oh, that's not great. And the yeah, Grammy Awards were last night. Taylor Swift winning her fourth album of the year and and announcing a new album, the Tortured Poets Department. Society? Department. That sounds Close like enough. I think she's she's still aggrieved. I don't know why she's so aggrieved. I feel like things are going really well. Oh, well, she's doing great. But her music is not for people who are in her position. It's for people who are not 
You know what I mean? It's for it's for people who are going through breakups and bad things in life yeah. and they need they need a little pick me up. That's what she's there for. Yeah. The sad, the sad, pathetic people like us. Oh, stop. What? We're not pathetic. You think well, we're pathetic? Probably not. I would think so. No. Um, no, I think we're OK. Yeah. So the border bill, we I, I know we're going to get into this more in detail, but it's a little frustrating when you do have some bipartisan cooperation to implement stricter limits along the U.S. southern border, limits that haven't been really put into effect, changes that haven't been put into effect for decades. We know we're having a crisis here, and yet Speaker Mike Johnson said, no, it's dead on arrival. It's the toughest border bill that's ever really been proposed. I mean, it was tougher than the one that uh, that that happened under Trump's watch, Donald Trump's watch. And that bill, um, I, I believe, even had some amnesty for dreamers, right? This one doesn't. Mm-hmm. This is as conservative of a bill as has ever been agreed upon. The, the, there is no dreamer and amnesty in this bill, and that is a big concession from Democrats. So really, this is it, it proves two things to me. One, the thing that we've talked about a lot and I've said a lot. I just don't think Republicans want to get a deal done because they like the issue. It works for them. It works for them to use it to continually say, look at the Democrats, open border. Just anybody who wants to come in can come in. It's it it's ridiculous. They like using this and it is effective for them. And the other thing is, and maybe more importantly, I think it says a lot about our overall politics in that here is something that the majority of people in the country want. And what I, what I mean by want is uh, uh, cooperation. Mm-hmm. They want bipartisanship. Well, here's a huge example of it. The, the, both parties got together in the Senate and said, here's a deal. It moves us forward. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to fix everything, but it is progress in an area that has never really ever been addressed. Seriously, it hasn't. So here's an effort to do that. And instead of just taking the wins, because if you look at the bill on both sides, each side could argue, well, we didn't get enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not. It, and that is, by definition, a good deal if both sides feel like, you know, we could have gotten a little bit more. And that's that's exactly what this is. So here's some bipartisanship. And instead of taking it as a victory for both parties and moving forward, you've got the House of Representatives, which is um, and and it's a handful of people, too, Amy, because, you know, from everything you've read, there is a a there are a lot of people who believe the House would pass this bill. That's Mm -hmm. why they're not going to bring it to a vote. Because it would get bipartisan support in the House as well, but you have a handful of people that are not going to do it. And that's that sucks. Yeah. It really does. And something is better than nothing. And I know they say don't let you know perfection be the enemy of progress here, but I don't. It's not about perfection. As you said, it does feel like partisan politics. It's a political football that both sides have been able to use. I do think the upcoming election 
President Joe Biden getting a lot of criticism for both sides about his border policy, or you could say lack of border policy. We are seeing historic numbers of migrants crossing the southern border. We are seeing cities such as sanctuary cities being overwhelmed, as well as the towns in Texas being overwhelmed. But this actually would make some changes. The Some key changes in the bill include emergency authority to restrict border crossings if the daily average migrant encounter reaches 4,000 over a one-week span. And, and Amy, make uh, make uh, I want to make clear yeah. that that encounter, that doesn't mean people let in. It doesn't mean 5,000 people are let into the country. It means encounters yeah. at the border because not all of those people are getting in. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. Yes. And so if that metric is reached, the Homeland Security Secretary could could decide to largely bar migrants from seeking asylum. And that's the key word here, because there is the immigration policy and then there's asylum policy. And if you say, you know, what is in essence the magic words, I'm seeking asylum, you're not just a migrant, you're an asylee, because you feel that your life is in immediate danger. Well, by current policy, the U.S. says, OK, well, we have to we can't send you back. But this would say if certain numbers, if certain limits are reached, even if you say you are seeking asylum, you will be turned away. Yeah. And so it is, I think, as as we said earlier, this is as um, as conservative of a deal that has ever been agreed upon by both parties. Obviously nothing has ever been passed. Um, there's no been, there's not been any real legislation, but you know, to, to make this agreement and to have both parties say, yeah, let's, let's do it and move forward. And knowing there would probably be plenty of support in the house of representatives to get it done. What we're talking about here essentially is a small group, a handful of people that are fouling it up for everybody else. And that's, what's going on. And and whether it's because they they truly don't believe in this bill or they're listening to the former president who doesn't want them to pass it, whatever the case may be, it sucks that we're not going to be able to move forward and actually make some progress on an issue that the Republicans keep saying is the most important thing going on in the country right now. Well, here's a deal. So pass the damn thing. But they're not going to do it. Yeah. And I will say, again, just the details of what this looks like working out. Uh, over the course of the day, because, again, you've got or weeks, you've got migrants, immigrants, asylum seekers. There was the 4000 encounters over a one week span. Then there's the migrant crossings increase above 5000 on average per day on a given week. The DHS is required to use that authority to limit migrants. Um, If encounters reach 8,500 in one day, the department is required to trigger that authority. What's interesting, too, is that this bill raises the legal standard of proof to pass the initial screening for asylum. So it could make it more difficult for asylum seekers to qualify as asylum seekers. I will say just I know we need stricter rules for sure. I don't know how you prove what does legal proof look like? that your life is in immediate danger in your country, right? I mean, think of people I, coming yeah, from I dire know. circumstances and the what they have to have legally, what kind of paperwork, what kind of proof they have to have. I don't know what qualifies as proof. I don't know, but that's what the courts are for. They figure it out and they are surveilled until there's a court date. So it's not like there's this perception that they would 
oh, just come in and go wherever you want to go, mm-hmm. and we're not going to have any idea where you are. That's not how it would work. So I don't know. I, I look at this, and I at least see the details of it mm-hmm. uh, presented, and I feel like this is this is progress. If you, re- if you really, truly care about the border, and you know this is a monumental task, that you're not going to get it down to zero anytime soon. It just is not realistic. And that's what Mike Johnson literally said in a tweet a week ago. He said any border deal that lets more than zero across Mm -hmm. the border is dead on arrival. It's not good enough. Well, that's not realistic. No, let's let's talk real life here. It's not realistic. And also (laughs) with I don't know what Republicans think they're going to gain or what they're going to lose. The same with when Donald Trump doesn't want to give this immigration bill to the Democrats. So it's they're kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On one side, they've said, don't pass this. We don't want to give this victory to Democrats. On the other side, you have Mike Johnson saying, well, it's not good enough. Is it a victory or it's not a victory? Because if it's not good enough and you pass it, Republicans will still vote Republican, it's not a victory for the Democrats. If it is a but victory about, for the Democrats, then pass it. It's good. How about this, Amy? Why can't it be a win for everybody? Yeah. Why does it why does it only have to be a win for the Democrats or a win for the Republicans? Why can't and again, this is what the majority of citizens in the country want. They want politicians to work together and compromise and figure it out. Well, here's an example of both sides working together and compromising. And you have this this group that says, nope, we're, we're not going to allow it to happen because it's a win for the Democrats. Why is it not a win for you, too? Yeah. Why can't why can't you claim a victory? Why can't you say, look, look what we did. The Republicans, we we did this. We forced the Democratic Party to to concede on some of these things. And we got this deal done and passed. Why can that not be a victory for everybody? I don't get it. If you have an answer, we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this topic, the border bill? We're also um, going to talk about U.S. retaliation strikes uh, after Iran-backed militias killed three U.S. service members. The number here to call or text 314 314- Four three six seventy nine hundred three one four four three six seventy nine hundred, or you can leave a voicemail at nine four four eleven twenty. See, you oh, caught me off guard. I did. I did catch you off guard. I will say this: we do have one text already, Chris, who said, "OMG, Chris, you do have hair and is a very handsome head of hair." <laughs> See, <laughs> who said that? Uh, that is from a three one four. Okay. Yeah, it's from a 314. You've got a handsome yeah, head of hair. You can watch us on hey. um, the Facebook for KMOX or our YouTube channel. <laughs> Somehow I look better when I stay home and I'm sick than when I come into work. Oh, look at you. <laughs> We've all got our unique traits. He's Chris oh. Ranji. I'm Amy. Mark scores. This is KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. Chris Ranji, Amy Mark scores with you on a Monday morning. We were just talking about the 
potential border bill, immigration bill, that Speaker Mike Johnson said will be dead on arrival. I want to hear from you at 314-436-7900. You can call or text us at that number. You can also leave a voicemail at 314-944-1120. We have a 636 Nope, no, not even a six three six. I think it's a it's a four oh three. It says four oh three, where is that? Four oh five? Four oh five. Oh four oh five, yeah. I bet that's Nebraska. It says I agree that in theory, um, a win for everybody as much as possible. But Chris, having a court date that does not keep an immigrant from going wherever they want and simply not showing up. Well, no, but I guess that's true for anybody, isn't it? I mean, then why ever have court dates for anything ever? If people could just not show up if they don't want to, um, they will be surveilled. I mean, that's the point. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I get the point with the court date because an illegal immigrant, undocumented immigrant, maybe they're document, but documented, but probably would be easier to find me or you for a court date than it would be someone in the immigration system. That would make sense. But but how many of these people do we think are are getting this court date, which could effectively give them asylum and then start the process of being able to stay here more permanently? Why go around that and and effectively kill your chances of being able to stay in the country permanently? Because eventually you're going to get caught. I mean, eventually you're there because if you live here, you're going to have to work. And if you work you're going to get caught eventually. So I don't I don't understand that that seems more like um worrying about a a very small percentage of of what could potentially end up crossing the border. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just I just don't see a lot of people doing that. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense to. I don't know the exact what? numbers for those who aren't showing up like delinquency and court appearances. I would not be surprised if it's way higher than we think, I would not be surprised if it's lower than we think. I think it's a mess. I would, yeah, I, I would bet on the latter, um, and that's why if you if you make it if you make it so that the the process is more streamlined, mm-hmm. so that you can get to them in months instead of years, then why would we not want to do that? That makes more sense. Another three one four. Can you address rep- the Republicans' argument that any new laws wouldn't be enforced by the president anyway, and that he, mean Biden, already has the tools through executive orders to shut down the border, like Trump did, if only he had the will to do it? Well, uh, I don't think he does have the authority to do it, even though they keep saying he does, and this appears to be a deal that he is in on. So why would he not enforce a law that he's agreed to? And I think he would want to do some enforcement, too, knowing that immigration is such a big deal for so many voters, even Democratic voters, that to garner more support, he does need to have some control. Another text from a 314. The bipartisan Senate bill on immigration is a major move in the right direction. As an independent voter, I fully support this. It's a very complicated issue that needs to be addressed. And this bill does that. And that's absolutely the point. This can be a win for everybody. Republicans, Democrats, everybody can claim a victory on this. Why not take it? What is going on with the increasing conflict between the United States and Iran-backed militias? We'll chat with Bilal Saab, the director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle Eastern Institute, next. 
Amy Mark scores alongside Chris Ranji as we have watched over the past few days a very high stakes tit for tat here with the U.S. military and Iran backed militia groups. And an Iran backed militia group just today claimed responsibility for a drone strike against a base in eastern Syria. Now, that base is used by U.S. troops and it killed six American allied Kurdish fighters. Um, Things seem to be escalating, but to give us insight on what exactly is going on and what we might expect is the director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle Eastern Institute, Bilal Saab. Bilal, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. Good to be with you again. Well, as we see this back and forth, it's a little bit like what happened back when Trump uh, retaliated by going after Soleimani, and then we saw a back and forth for a bit, and things died down. Is this similar? Is this different? What are we looking at right now? Well, in some ways it's similar, but it's also different. Let me explain. It's similar in the sense that this is a long conflict, obviously. The regional uh, security threat that Iran poses is uh, has been with us for the past few decades. Uh, it ebbs and flows. Um, depending on, uh, you know, uh, the appetite of the Iranians to continue to spread their influence across the region. Um, the, um, the thing that's different about it this time around is that it challenges for the first time in, I believe, four decades or so since the late 1980s, a core and enduring U.S. interest in the Middle East, which is the freedom uh, of navigation and the free flow of commerce. you got to remember that this has been the one thing that has guided U.S. Middle East policy since Jimmy Carter, right? So for the first time since then, the Houthi attacks at sea have challenged that interest. And so this is the first time we have had to deal with something like this. So it's a it's sort of a new thing in that respect. Is it a more volatile, more dangerous situation than in the past? Yeah, it's especially volatile because uh, for the first time again, you are seeing all of these members of the Iran axis, if you want to call it, Iran threat network being activated across the region. We used to talk about it in theory in the past, uh, sort of in a hypothetical scenario. And now you're seeing it uh, across the region in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, and of course the Palestinian territories with Hamas and the October 7 attack. And not to forget, of course, the juggernaut of the Iranians in Lebanon, that's uh, Hezbollah. So we're dealing with a multifaceted problem that has metastasized over many years, in large part, I hate to say it, uh, because of U.S. negligence. Well, can you explain what do you mean by U.S. negligence? I know there's a lot of disagreement regarding the U.S. and its relationship with Iran, whether that's the JCPOA being in it, uh, having Donald Trump pulling out of it, joining it again. Where, what do you mean by the negligence? Well, for a good reason, for many years, we have prioritized, uh, as I think you mentioned it, the Iranian nuclear issue. There's the one thing that we should obviously not tolerate, which is the Iranians being in possession of a nuclear weapon. So that's understandable. But at the same time, we have totally, okay, I'm not going to say totally. We have, to a large extent, um, ignored, underemphasized the other nuclear problem, which is uh, this regional axis and uh, 
these uh, proxies that have proliferated across the region, which have allowed the Iranians in many ways to um, spread their nefarious influence and um, enable all of these attacks that we're seeing today. We have hardly ever been serious about strategically addressing this problem. Our partners in the region have begged us to look into this. We have not, and this is now where we are. That's what I mean by negligence. Yeah, last week it was said by, I believe, U.S. intelligence that um, their belief was Iran was actually sort of concerned by the actions of their proxies taking it a little bit too far than what they thought was going to happen and therefore um, the retaliation being worse or the escalation happening. Is there truth to that? I love my colleagues in the intelligence community. I brief them every now and then, uh, not to name names. Uh, I think this assessment is absolutely bogus. Uh, The Iranians do not provide generous, continuous military assistance to these uh, proxies and then worry about how they're going to use them. These attacks are entirely consistent with Iranian strategic designs. If the Iranians wanted to de-escalate, all they would have to do is stop these weapons systems and, of course, leverage those networks that they have to have an honest, serious conversation about uh, managing that violence. But they are doing the complete opposite. I don't know where that assessment is coming from. Now, there might be differences amongst proxies, some a little bit more you know, uh, amenable to Iranian preferences and so on and so forth, but I, those differences are minimal. I do not really see any actor that is working independently and against Iranian preferences. That's ridiculous. Right now, this conflict, the back and forth, um, including the militia group strike in eastern Syria and then the U.S.'s strike in Iraq and then the, the militia groups, again, their strike in Jordan. Is this all the same Iran-backed militia group, the Islamic Resistance yeah, I mean, it's an umbrella organization. Obviously, it's got multiple you know, parts to it. But this is really a secondary question. I mean, I think we over-litigate um, who exactly pulled the trigger and who exactly did this or that. It doesn't matter. It's all really part of the same network that is sponsored by the Iranians in many ways in close coordination with the Iranians. And that's what we should be focusing our strategic communications on, to seize and desist. This is not really a legal, purely legal matter in terms of who perpetrated these attacks. We know who's behind them. We know what the return address is. Would this be happening if there were a different president in the White House? Mm, That's a tough question. You got to remember that at least. Uh, taking at face value what the proxies are saying, especially the Houthis, that they are um, committing these attacks uh, in response to uh, Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. So if that happened, I don't think it matters really who occupies the Oval Office. The question that we should be asking ourselves, if there were a different president, would you see a different U.S. response? Um, This is a question of hypotheticals. I just don't know. Frankly, we have to be aware of our limitations. We have to be humble about them. Um, We are doing some things right, but we certainly are leaving a lot uh, on the table. uh, And I'm happy to talk to you about what I believe we should be doing. But um, to answer your question, most likely it would not matter who's um, president. Uh, What would matter is how we would respond to these things. 
can I ask you, what do you think we should be doing? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, okay. Well, listen, I um, I think I've communicated to you already that I feel that the Houthi attacks at sea should be a priority uh, of ours. Not that the other stuff is less, you know, important. Obviously, force protection, especially for the safety and well-being of our troops in Iraq and Syria, is paramount. But over there, we are in the uh, more of a defensive position. We're more worried about, you know, force protection than anything else. We cannot be more proactively countering the Iranian threat in those countries because the politics in Baghdad are incredibly sensitive. I mean, we are in a difficult relationship with the Iraqis. Uh, in Syria, also, we have very limited capabilities there. Uh, we only have 900 troops, and the assets that we would need there to really counter the Iranian influence uh, would have to be brought from other theaters, and we just have limited resources. The Houthi threat, as I told you, challenges a core interest of the United States. Therefore, it has to be prioritized. Um, airstrikes, which we are conducting, alone are necessary but insufficient. I think we need to be coming up and this is a memo that my colleagues and I are actually wrapping up now and sending to um, our friends in the administration. We need to be coming up with a broad interdiction regime at sea. Is a fancy words for not just going after the capabilities of the Houthis that they currently possess, but also countering the supply lines of the Houthis. Because if the Iranians continue to supply them with weapons, then we're not doing a whole lot. All we're doing is basically you're walking a mole and the Iranians will you know, continue to uh, uh, replenish those stocks of the Houthis. We need something at sea to interdict smuggling, to interdict um, all those supplies that are going to the Houthis in order to really severely degrade the capabilities of the organization. That's going to require a ton of international cooperation, obviously, uh, especially the European allies and uh, the Arab partners which is why this is an interagency effort, right? You need the State Department to negotiate these things, but then you also need the Department of Defense to allocate more resources for CENTCOM to do this. I'm not sure you know, where the president is on this, but we're going to recommend yeah. it. Uh, Bilal, we, we have talked to experts in the, the, the recent past here, you know, within the last five, six months, who will tell us that Pretty much everything that's happening right now in some way is interconnected. Clearly what's happening in Gaza, uh, this has a lot to do with that. But also what is happening in Ukraine and how Russia has been um, you know, working in that part of the world, that all of these things are in, in many respects very interconnected and you can't just separate them and say, well, we're going to focus our attention here but not here because that's not as important. How interconnected are all of these events? I think the only connection that I see in my mind is uh, at least the perception of our adversaries of reduced U.S. Uh, leadership uh, around the world. And so they're exploiting our vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and um, I believe that deterrence uh, on a global scale, U.S. deterrence, has certainly weakened. Uh, that is the immediate connection that I see in my mind. But beyond that, frankly, um, I just don't see the interconnectedness of regional theaters. I mean, obviously, what's going on in the Middle East will impact the international economy if those attacks continue against maritime uh, vessels. Uh, but you know, beyond that, um, I'm, I'm not as smart uh, uh, to see really a direct and specific you know connection between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in. Uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, I think the Arab partners 
certainly are closely watching how we continue to respond to the Ukraine crisis. And should there be a suspension of U.S. aid to the Ukrainians, obviously that would send shockwaves across the Middle East also in terms of how they view our credibility and our commitment to their defense and security. So maybe that's another connection that I see. But beyond that, I just don't see anything specific. Uh, Bilal, I know we got to let you go, but I, I've heard so many, whether it's in the media or government officials or experts, talk about their reluctance to get into a full-fledged con- conflict with Iran. When you look at what's going on, is Iran's ability or is their allied network commensurate with the extent of our fears if we were to escalate things? I love that question, and it's a very good one. Listen, I sympathize, obviously, with the um, uh, concern over, uh, you know, a, a full-fledged confrontation with the Iranians. Uh, that's the last thing we need, obviously, right now in the Middle East. Uh, Iran is a formidable power that in no way resembles anything that we've had to deal with in the Middle East. That's it. That said, uh, our concern over escalation uh, should be 10 times full in Tehran. I mean, if we are concerned about escalation, they should be worried about escalation a whole lot more because obviously the dramatic balance of power that tilts in our favor. Um, I think that we certainly should not be letting our policy be driven by this fear of escalation uh, and switching to a more... Uh, let's just call it Iran-centric approach, basically forget about the proxies, just go strike in Iran, which some, as you know, influential uh, congressmen have called for. Look, at this moment, for the time being, I think it's counterproductive. It's unnecessary, and I think it goes against, you know, what we're trying to do, which is calm down the situation in the Middle East. But if Iran stays the course, if Iran further escalates, then there's a whole range of options that go from what we're doing now to the uh, very extreme of launching strikes inside Iran that we still haven't explored. And that interdiction regime that I talked to you about at sea, it's just one idea. There are so many other targets in the region, including coastal anti-ship, anti-aircraft batteries. Heck, that military ship that's parked at sea in the Red Sea that's providing targeting information to the Houthis. Yeah, why don't we sink that? There are so many things that we still can do on that escalation ladder that falls short of striking deep inside Iran. We haven't explored any of those things. So let's just adopt a gradual adaptive uh, strategy that, look, if we end up at the very end, you know, having to strike targets inside Iran because they, I don't know, launch a spectacular attack against the U.S. homeland or something in the region that causes significant casualties, then so be it. But right now it's incredibly premature. And uh, we have to see how the Iranians respond to what we're doing. And we have to maintain some kind of a bargaining space with them in order to keep the situation under control. He is Bilal Saab, the director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle Eastern Institute. Bilal, thank you so much for your time this morning. I love talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. He's Chris Ranji. I'm Amy Mark Scores. Did You See This is next. Did you see that thing? I can't believe it. Something is obviously wrong. This is a joke, right? Oh, my God. Are you freaking kidding me? No way. You got to be kidding me. Don't feel bad. There's no way you could have known that. Now, did you see this with Chris and Amy on the show? Ranj, 
Did you see this? Yeah. Michael Bublé, not on mushrooms. He was joking. Oh, come on, man. Yeah, he was joking. Oh, that sucks. Yep, he said, 20 years and people still don't get my humor. I just keep rolling. LOL. He said, how many oh. mushrooms do you have to be on to not know I was joking? And I was like, well, we felt like <laughs> <laughs> Hey. I'm I'm disappointed because it was really funny. I love Michael Bublé. Yeah. Hey, did you see that yesterday was National Bean Day? Mm-mm. And then today, apparently, is National Fart Day. Well, I'm glad we're not sharing the same room. Well, I mean, I don't have that. That's not my problem today. My problem's a little different <laughs> than, than well, that, thankfully. Well, but yeah, today is a, apparently National... Uh, Pass wind day. Wow, let... and a day after Bean Day. Wow, it's, it's perfect. It is perfect. Yes. You would think. Uh, you think maybe that was coordinated. All right. Well, uh, when we come back at eleven, Sean Malone is going to let us know what in the world is going on with the drones and Jomo Johnson, and whether or not his little business is actually a cult. It's so weird. He's Chris Ranji. I'm Amy Mark Scores. This is KMOX. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.